everybody. Um, so we're going to keep looking and thinking about God's word. We're going to be in 1 John 3 for this morning. 1 John 3, 3 chap, uh, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> I just want to say, I know like sometimes it can be hard. I'm, I'm totally good with hollering over kids. I got no problem with that. Um, but if you need some room for them to run, I, there's nothing like the basin's wide open. If you need to get some beans out or whatever, and then come back again or, or just... Um, yeah, or stay or whatever. I, I'm good to go. Just wanted to let you all know that that's available anyway. So yeah, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. The title of this sermon is Being and Becoming the Image-Bearing Children of God. Being and Becoming the Image-Bearing Children of God. It can be found on page 960 in the church Bibles. If you're new to church or new to Christianity and you don't yet have a Bible of your own, then just take one of the church ones. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible. The Bible tells us that God has revealed himself generally to all mankind in creation by the things he has made. But it says that he has revealed himself specifically in his word, the Bible. And without the Bible, we wouldn't really know who God is or what he's done or who we are even or what he requires of us or what, he want, uh, what he's done in Christ to bring us to himself again. And as we'll see later on in this sermon, it's actually through the Bible that we become more like God at this time in history. The sermon's going to be broken into three sections. This sentence broken into three sections. Being leads to becoming by beholding. First section is being leads to becoming by beholding. It took me a long time to settle on what I wanted to speak about today. It was kind of open-ended from Mark. I flip-flopped between so many options, I couldn't land on anything. And Shiloh Huxley and I are going through 1 John, a verse at a time, just studying it really slow. And we came to chapter 3, these three verses, and I knew I found my topic. Because after the book of Hebrews, 1 John has been the most life-changing book that I've ever studied. The interpretive key for 1 John is a little later in chapter 5, verse 13, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So it's a book that John wrote to encourage Christians that they had eternal life. And throughout the book, he describes Christians' thought, attitudes, behavior, and affections that the Holy Spirit works inside of those who believe. So, as you read through it, if you were to read through it this afternoon, and you see the things described in the book in your life, even if they're in seed form and growing, but if you see them, you could be encouraged that you have eternal life, the Spirit's at work in you. Or conversely, you could read through it and actually not see the things described in the book in your life. And with that awareness, of not having eternal life, you could call out to Jesus then and be saved because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And my prayer to God this morning is that both of those things might happen as we look at 1 John. Uh, let's pray again as we look at God's word. We'll pray and then I'm going to read the passage. Father, this morning, reveal yourself as you say in your new covenant promise from the least of them to the greatest, or from the youngest of us to the oldest, God, that you would reveal yourself, that you would show yourself in your word to us, that we might know you. 
And I want to pray too. Later on in chapter 3, it says that the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. And I want to see that happen this morning. I want to see the devil's work of discouragement in believers destroyed. I want to see the devil's work of blindness upon people that think they're in when they aren't destroyed. And I want to see out from this church lots of the devil's work destroyed in our community. I want to see your word upheld, and I want to see Jesus ruling and reigning practically and actively in all parts of our lives and families and our community. So I'm praying this morning. That's what I hope you do by your word. For Jesus' sake, because he died and bled, he deserves it. And for our good, our best good, which is in you. So I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. For the first section on being, we're going to look at the first one and a half verses of that. Being God's image-bearing children. We see from the text that God's love is a purposeful love. It's a love that accomplishes things. It gets things done. I once heard Vodi Bauckham describe love, like God's love, biblical love, as a decision of the will accompanied by emotion for the good of the one being loved. It's a decision of the will accompanied by emotion for the good of the one being loved. That's how God loves. The catchphrase about love in our culture lately has been, love is love. I don't know if you've seen that written anywhere, anybody saying that. Love is love. But that basically amounts to a dirty, meaningless pile of undefined slop. Love is whatever we make it to be. Whatever we feel it to be. Whatever we desire it to be, day to day. No, the Bible says God is love. And see what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's a specific and defined kind of love. It's a love that's made us be something. That's what it did. And it's a love that calls us children of God. It's a love that first calls us to be children of God. God's love is an initiating love. First John says elsewhere, we love because he first loved us. That's the order. He first loved us, now we love. He went first. God goes first, and God goes forth in love. He's first, and then he goes forth in his love. God, in his love, he goes out to the highways and the byways. He goes into enemy territory, into every nook and cranny of the earth to effectually call his children to be his children. See what kind of love the Father has to call people like you and me his children. See what kind of love the Father has to get his gospel of salvation around the world, to even collect and adopt children for himself in heathen Canada. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? 
right? No longer called enemy, but son and daughter. No longer self-obsessed, but seeking God's glory. No longer liar, but honest. No longer pervert, but pure. No longer violent, but peacemaker. No longer rebel, but friend. See what kind of love it is? Like it's a love that makes us be something. It's a love that makes us become something. By God's love, we're being transformed and conformed into the image of his beloved son. God's love gives us a new name. It gives us a new position as children of the king of kings. God's love gives us new identity in our union with Christ. Do you see what kind of love the Father has given to us? It's a love that calls us his own. It's a love that brings us into his eternal love. As my five-year-old Archer, his Jesus Storybook Bible says, God's love is his never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. Do you see this love? It's a love that has made us his children now. Now, right now. Not his lesser children. Not his begrudgingly loved children. Love that makes us his real children right now. It can. And it has. Love that has placed us in Christ. And here's an amazing thing. His love has placed us in Christ. And so the love with which he loves us is the exact same love that he has for his eternal son. As the storybook Bible puts it so perfectly, it's a love that makes us lovely because he loves us. Can you believe this love? Will you accept this love? Do you know what the biggest miracle is in the world? You might think it's like parting a sea, raising the dead, something big like that. I think the biggest miracle in the world is when God's children believe that he loves them like he says they do, like he says he does. When we can look at the, the portrait of ourselves in the scriptures, in our sin, in our muck, in our rebellion, and then to believe the things God says about us in his love, that is a huge miracle. That's like the biggest miracle. And I wonder... After talking about all that, what's in your head? What's in your head? Are you accepting it? Or do you at this point think, as I do, as I did when I was writing stuff, then why am I such a mess? <laughs> if God loves me so much, why is my life turmoil? And why are my days filled with so much sin and stupid? Well, my brothers and sisters, I think that much of our dysfunction, a lot of it, arises from forgetting who we are. Whether it's forgetting, or neglecting, or straight up denying. When we aren't seeing ourselves with the eyes of faith, we'll just live as merely human. When we aren't firmly rooted in whose we are, we get derailed by all kinds of sin and stupid. Think of, uh, in the Bible, think of the prodigal son. After he had ran away, and he spent all of his father's money on wild living, it says he came to his senses. And here's the thing he said. He said, wait a second. The servants of my father 
my father. They have it better than I do right now. Here I am wanting to eat pig slop, and the servants of my father eat better than I am right now. So he remembered whose he was, and then he could start living like that. Start, start, his life could start getting in line with that. Or think of the theological analogy, Lion King. Anybody know Lion King? Kids? Yeah? You know Lion King? The first one? Not Lion King 36 or whatever? The first one. Think of that part of the movie where Simba is living with Timon and Pumbaa, where he first finds them. What's their catchphrase? What's their song that they sing? Huh? Hakuna Matata, which means no worries. That's how he's living, no worries. He's living Hakuna Matata with Timon and Pumbaa, no worries about anything except himself and eating slugs and being a bum. And why is he doing that? Why is he living like that? What do you think? Huh? His father died, but whose son was he, even though his father died? Yeah, that's right. Who is the king? He forgot. I'm the king. I'm the rightful heir to the throne. I, like, he should have been spending his time not living Hakuna Matata. He should have been occupying himself with learning how to rule and reign and making a plan to overthrow his evil uncle off of the throne that he should have been sitting on. He had lost his purpose because he had lost his identity. He was living a false reality because he had a misplaced identity. And I think that's what we often do. So what's your identity? What is your identity? Who do you think of yourself as? Are you a son? Are you a daughter? Is God your father? Are you God's child now, right now? And are you rooted in that? Is that really your identity? And is your life saying the same thing? Is that how you live? Do you live as a son or daughter of the king of the universe? Do you know by the love of God that you have eternal life? So that's a bit on being. We're going to move into becoming. We are becoming the children of God. We are becoming what we will be. This way of thinking of things in the Bible is called the now and not yet. And ever since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, after he rose from the dead, and until he returns on the clouds of heaven at the very end, we are living in the now and not yet. This whole part of the history of redemption, the last 2,000 plus years, is now and not yet. Even in our text, it says, we are children of God now. And what we will be has not yet been made known, now and not yet. But it's appearing bit by bit. That's what we're doing right now. It's appearing bit by bit until it fully appears when we see him. And this bit by bit becoming is what we Christians are to be busy doing. That's called, I'm going to give you some $10 theological words. Maybe you've heard them, maybe not. Sanctification. That's what becoming like Jesus is. It's sanctification. In Romans 8, 29 to 30, it describes what some theologians call the golden chain of salvation. I'm just going to read it for you. There's the, other, the other fancy theological words are in here. I'll explain them as we go. It says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that's the destiny of every Christian, to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so there's five links in that chain, that chain of salvation. If any link is missing, we wouldn't be saved. There's the link of predestination, that God graciously chose to save you specifically and individually before the foundation of the world. There's the link of calling, that God effectually calls you to be his child by the gospel. There's the link of justification, when he gives you the gifts of repentance and faith, you believe in him, and you are declared not guilty before God. And then there's the link of sanctification, which is becoming progressively like Jesus as we are led along by the Spirit. And last link, glorification. Finally free from the presence and power of sin. Predestination, calling, justification, sanctification, glorification. All these links are important, and each of them cling to each other. If the link of sanctification that most occupies our life right now, that's the one we're busy doing once we become a Christian, coming like Jesus. It's the link of becoming. That's what it is. It's becoming the children of God who more closely represent the image of the Son. And it's the hope of glorification, that last link, the hope of it, that motivates us to press on while we're in sanctification. Or, as it says in 1 John 3, Back to our text, 1 John 3. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's sanctification. So I got some questions for you, for me. Are you the same person you were five years ago? Have you become more like Christ since then? Have you stayed the same? Have you gotten worse? What do the people closest to you say? I ask that for two reasons, because sometimes we can fake it around everybody else and the people closest to you know you. And then sometimes you're like me and you're morbidly introspective and you think there's no way I'm a Christian and you need other people to speak into your life about the signs of grace they can see. What do the people closest to you say? Something my wife Kat says is, who you are at home is who you really are. So ask those people at your home, what do you see in me? Am I changing? What do I need to work on? What are my blind spots? Who are you? Because this is an apparent contradiction in a lot of people's lives who claim to be Christians. Because they will hearken back to a time, some time in the past, when they had a religious experience, or maybe they made a decision for Christ, or they prayed a prayer to accept Jesus or something, but they can't really give current and ongoing evidence of this bit-by-bit bit change in their life. If you haven't changed, or if you aren't changing, then First John would say you don't have eternal life, you aren't God's child. That's a thing to truly consider this morning. Because you won't be saved with that link of sanctification missing from the golden chain of salvation you're hanging on to. One link leads to the next, and there's no skipping over any of them on the way to glorification. Fundamentally changing, which is sanctification, is not something just good Christians do. It's something Christians do. It's something Christians are doing. It's what we're doing. 
It's a constant endeavor that's driven by our constant hope. I'm going to show you that in 3.3. Every translation of the Bible is always trying to strike a balance between readability and a literal translation. Because the Bible was originally written in, in Hebrew, Aramaic, a little bit, and Greek. And so it's tricky sometimes to bring things into English or French or Spanish or whatever, another language. So the translators are always balancing that between readability and literal translation. One translation I like to check when I'm studying is Young's literal. As the name signifies, it's, it's, just, it's literal. It's totally literal. The translators didn't have any regard for readability whatsoever. It's very awkward to read, but it's great for getting the literal meaning of a text. One such instance is in regard to this ongoing sanctification thing. In, in our Bibles, the church Bibles, ESV, in 3.3 it says, And everyone who thus hopes in him, and everyone who thus hopes in him. Whereas in the YLT, it says, everyone who is having this hope on him. We don't talk like that normally, but that's what it's saying. Everyone who is having this hope on him. As Christians, we are having this hope. The hope of becoming like him from verse 2. It's not to be a thing talked about as like a hope we had or a hope we have and don't have. Like it could be picked up and put down or anything. It's our constant possession. We are having this hope right now and in the next moment and in all the moments throughout my life, I'm going to be having this hope in constant possession of it. It's ongoing. It's continual. It's perpetual. It's active hope. To be Christian is to be having hope. Everyone who is having this hope of him, of becoming like him, purifies himself as he is pure. So our constant hope drives us in a current and constant endeavor to purify ourselves, the text says, even as he's pure, even as Jesus is pure. And so that's why, well, that's why I could say with the authority of the Bible that if, we, if you haven't changed and if you aren't in the process of changing, you might not have eternal life and be God's kid. And if the Spirit is causing you to realize you, that that's you this morning, like you might have been coming here 5, 10, 20 years but you haven't changed at all and maybe the spirit's impressing that upon you that today could be your day of salvation you could believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved you can enter into a possession of a constant hope that drives you in a current endeavor of being pure like Jesus is pure and if that's where you are, you need to talk to somebody today. Like, talk to a trusted, mature Christian friend about where your soul's at. Or come talk to me or one of the leaders after the service, because we would love to talk to you. We would love to help you. Don't brush it off if the Holy Spirit is pressing that in. Of all the links in the chain of salvation, we only help with one. Like predestination, calling, justification, glorification, all those they're what are called monogistic works of God. Things he does by himself. Mono. He does them all by himself. Whereas sanctification is a synergistic work. There's a, a working together, a synergy that we are doing with God. We work along with him on that one. And that's why in 3.3 it says that if you have that current and constant hope of being like him, then you will purify yourself as he is pure. So just as we're having this hope on him, so too we're having this progressive purity 
The two go hand in hand. It's just what happens. It's just what makes sense. There's ups and downs. If you read 1 John, you'll realize he's never talking about perfection because he says, if anyone sins, or if anyone says he has not sinned, he's a liar. John's not talking about perfection. He's talking about like the trajectory of your life. Are you, are you changing? God works this change in us. He both wills it and works it in us, and then we get to work on it. That's how it works. For Christians, it just makes sense. You know what? It makes no sense. It makes no sense to me, and it makes no sense to the onlooking world as they look at sort of Christendom, like the whole thing called Christianity. It makes no sense to have a bunch of people that claim to be the children of the King of Righteousness, and then they're no better or sometimes worse than the world. Like, that makes no sense. Let's get far away from that. I've heard people say, even in the church sometimes, Christians are the most ungracious, crusty, ungrateful people you'll ever meet. Are they? Are they? Well, sometimes maybe, yeah, let's admit it. We can all get into those ruts of being like Simba, forgetting who we are, and go back to eating slugs and being bums. But to stay there continually, to have unkind, crusty, ungrateful, and cold as the truest descriptions of someone years on end, no, that's not a Christian. That's a goat and a weed mixed in among the wheat. That's an imposter. Everyone who is having this hope on him is purifying himself as he is pure. On to the last section, by beholding. So we're being and becoming the image-bearing children of God by beholding. And I'm just basically going to take you on a quick tour through the, through the word to explain this part, landing back in 1 John. The way the word of God describes how the change in our life occurs is by beholding. The first change, where we become a Christian, and then the ongoing changes are all by beholding. God tells us we become what we behold. Both positively and negatively, we become what we behold. And by behold, I mean something that we, we're looking to, we're looking to it for wisdom, for strength, for identity, whatever, we pay attention to, we have regard for. That's what behold means. So let's look first negatively in Psalm 115.8. It says this, Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become what you behold. So if you look to and you have regard for a false dead thing like an idol or a false dead thing like money or a false dead thing like whatever, then you become like it, dead and false. Psalm 119, 18, the psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The beholding is something that God must allow and we must seek. Whenever we come to the Bible, whenever you come personally or on Sunday, whatever, we should be praying, God, open my eyes so I can behold and so I can become what I behold. As a dead body can't behold anything, so too when we were dead in our sins, God must give us that initial saving seeing of his son. We lay our eyes, our spiritual eyes on Jesus for the first time and live. And as when the scales were falling off of Saul's eyes when he became a Christian, so too we need continual layers of scales to fall off the eyes of our heart. 
in order to allow us to see God clearer and become like him. In Luke 11, 34 to 36, Jesus said this. He said, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body's full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. And if then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So the eye is like the doorway into our body. What you allow yourself to see and to desire and to give regard to, that's what fills your body. The passage tells us you become what you behold, and you behold what you desire. If your eye is good, because your heart's good, you'll desire light. That's what you'll want to be taking into you. If your eye is bad, because your heart is bad, you'll desire darkness. But I think Jesus is also giving a warning to his believers in saying this passage that we need to be careful as believers not to carelessly look at dark things because they could pollute the light within us with, with that darkness. If we want our light to shine before all men, we need to watch what we behold. Be careful about it. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is one of the most famous beholding verses and becoming. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, that bit by bit. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is probably the clearest example in the scriptures of that um, you become what you behold idea. We all, we all, Christians, we behold the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into that same image by what we see bit by bit by bit. This is the work of the Spirit as we work at beholding. You become what you behold. John 17, 24, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The greatest gift that a God of love can give is God himself. That's why Jesus wants us to be with him, so we could see him, so we could see his glory. Jesus wants us to see him because he loves us and he wants the best for us. He wants us to behold him and become like him because he loves us and he wants the best for us, which is to see him as he is. And then lastly, back to 1 John 3.2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. So all the little beholdings in our life that are leading to becoming in our lives, they're leading up to this great big beholding at the end of days that leads us to finally and fully becoming. And oh, it's going to be good to see him as he is with no more cloudiness in our understanding because of sin. There'll be no more misinterpreting or misunderstanding. There'll be no more blindness and ignorance on our part. No more apathy or distraction. There'll be no more physical or mental disabilities limiting our enjoyment of knowing him. This is the great hope of Christianity, to see him as he is. And this is why I wish grace and peace to all who love his appearing. I wish grace and peace to all Christians. Those are the ones longing for his appearing. We long for it. Who he is 
will then be fully known, and who we will become will fully be realized. So as we embark upon a new year together as a church, may we all do it, working at beholding the glory of the risen Lamb, being changed together from one degree of glory to the next. And may the Holy Spirit be pleased to reveal Jesus to us and in us. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.